77 years ago, a private citizen from the UK was invited by the President of the United States to come and speak to a small college in the middle of Missouri. It was Westminster College, and this private citizen had gone to a school in England named Westminster, so there was a kind of an affinity there. You know who the President was. He was the buck stops here, Harry Truman. And the college was in Fulton, Missouri, and you probably know the rest of the story, but if you don't, Winston Churchill gave a speech, which was called Sinews of Peace. That was what he intended it to be known as. And he very graciously welcomed Russia into the community of great powers. He said they had a place at the table. He welcomed their flag upon the seas of the world. And above all, he said, we welcome constant, frequent, growing contacts between the Russian people and our people on both sides of the Atlantic. He said, but it's my duty, however, that I am sure that you would want me to do this, to state what I see as the obvious facts in Europe today. And this is what he said. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe, Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities were behind the line. And he said they have fallen into the Soviet sphere. And all are subject in one form or another to Soviet influence. And that comes out of Moscow. You know what that signaled. It's not known as the sinews of speech, uh, of peace speech. It's known as the what? The Iron Curtain speech. The Cold War had begun, and it lasted for 46 years from then until 1991. Two great blocs, Eastern Bloc, Sino-Soviet on the one side, represented in Europe by the Warsaw Pact, and in the West, America and her allies along with Britain, and it was represented by NATO. The ethos, some of you are my age, you remember hiding under desks in your elementary schoolrooms. Proxy wars, espionage, sports diplomacy, propaganda, uh, trade embargoes, and probably most definitive of this period, the space race and the what race? The arms race. On the one side pointed this way were 33,000 nuclear warheads. On this side pointed in the other direction were 32,000 nuclear warheads. Enough power mutually to destroy not only both nations but both continents. And this became a policy of deterrence, mutually assured destruction, MAD. The guy that invented that term invented it. He used that acronym because he thought it was what? It was madness. Neat the spreading mushroom tree, the world revolves in apathy. While overhead, a row of specks roars on, drowned out by discotheques. Mm. And if the secret button's pressed, because one man has been outguessed, Ed Ames sang this song, Who Will Answer? You might remember, if you're my age, some of the protest songs like Barry Maguire's, and you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, how you don't believe we're on the what? Eve of destruction. But that all changed. The iconic event in most of our minds that were alive at that time uh, was in November of 1989, when East and West Germans climbed on top of that wall and began 
to dismantle it. And within two years, the Soviet Union was dissolved. The, War the Warsaw Pact was no longer after 1991. What's ironic about that, all of those old enemies, many of them became what? Friends. You probably know this, but every one of the Warsaw Pact nations, except the Soviet Union, has joined NATO, including those that weren't in Warsaw Pact, but they were part of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. It's interesting, sometimes deadly enemies can become friends almost overnight. One of the most surreal experiences that I've ever had was riding on the back of a motorbike in Hanoi, Vietnam, holding on to the shirt, desperately holding on to the shirt, of a Baptist pastor as he drove through the streets of Hanoi that I later discovered his dad was an NVA soldier, North Vietnamese regular, who fought against my dad in the 1968 Tet Offensive. You see, mortal enemies can become friends. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this passage today that we should be willing to do. Who are our enemies? You know, a lot of countries and nations' boundaries are artificial. They, they don't necessarily represent the ethnic identities. And a lot of times within those boundaries, there's internal conflict. Plus the alliances that we form today, those friends tomorrow may be enemies and vice versa. Who is our enemy? You look at society today, political parties on either side of the aisle virtually see each other as enemies. You're either liberal or you're conservative, maybe. Class struggles. Marx was not entirely wrong. There is an element, even today in America, of a kind of class struggle. Racial, racial and ethnic biases. Economically, we have rival, rivalries that border on war. Coke versus Pepsi. <laughs> Ford versus GM. And you declare your allegiance almost when you're born, right? McDonald's versus Burger King. UPS versus FedEx. Dunkin' Donuts versus Starbucks. And right, beneath my, right below my house, they're side by side. You know? Intense rivalries. Institutionally, we do the same thing. Educational institutions somehow think that, that if you get a student, I don't get a student. You see? Rivals against one another. In, the, in this state, we got Southwestern Seminary, Carroll Institute, and, B, and, and Truett Seminary, you know? Rivals. Nonprofits are the same. They are fighting for a slice of the pie in order to do good. The top seven nonprofits in this nation fight for almost $50 billion each year. Goodwill and YMCA to the tune of about $7 billion each. Catholic Charities and Salvation Army to the tune of about $5 billion each. Feeding America and United Way to the tune of about $4 billion each. American Red Cross comes in a poor seventh at only about $3.5 billion. You see, it causes rivalries that border on looking at the other side as a kind of enemy. Churches are the same way. Churches are the same way. We pray for harvesters to come into the harvest field. We do not pray that they only come to Gamble Street. We should pray that they go to other churches as well. We send out people from this church to other parts of the country, and we have sent out people from this church into other parts of this community to plant churches. But folks, sometimes churches look at each other as deadly rivals you get a member, you have a baptism, we don't get a member, we don't have a baptism. You add to your budget, you subtract from our budget. Denominational strife 
and Baptist life. Liberals versus fundamentalists versus moderates in the middle. The non-Christian sects in this nation and also often anti-Christian movements against the church. You see, America is filled with these kind of rivalries with great animosity and hostility. You know, there, there are two or three perspectives I think we need to think about before we really delve into the text. One of those is, are they really enemies? Are they really enemies? You know, sometimes it's not a two-sided thing. Sometimes it's a perception that I have that that other person is the enemy, and yet they don't even know that I hate them. Another aspect is sometimes the tension and the animosity is greatest between people that are closest together. You don't find Baptists and Catholics fighting over much anymore. But boy, I can tell you, you find Baptists fighting against Baptists. Why is that? Because we are so close together and we believe so much alike that sometimes when we rub up against each other, it causes sparks. Who was it that Jesus had the most difficulty and problem with and he, sp- out, he spoke, was most outspoken about? It was the Pharisees. And yet when you look at what the Pharisees believed, they believed more in, 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 in line with what Jesus said about the resurrection all in the Sadducees. And then we have the whole business about enemies of God. You know, sometimes we think that certain people are enemies of God, and we have to ask this question, is it because they're really enemies of God, or is it because they don't relate to God the way that I do and the way that I think they should? You see, these are matters of perspective when we think about enemies. Another matter of perspective is Prejudice is almost always at the core of animosity. Cultural biases, we know that. Nationality, ethnicity, social status, religion. And what we do is we look at people and we typecast them. We use popular phrases like, oh, well, he or she's a racist, or, or they're a fascist. And we use very shallow ad hominem terms to label people without really getting to know them. Prejudices drive this animosity. But there are really deeper issues that are involved. The deeper issues is usually something spiritual is going on there. We live in a fallen world of broken relationships to begin with, fractured and false identities. And when we look at other people, we really don't even know who they are. And often they do not know who we are. And we have a very disrespectful attitude about other human beings when we have this kind of hostility, often not respecting their image in God. There's another perspective before we look at the text, and it's this. We treat it all like it's a zero-sum game. You know what I mean? There must be a winner and there must be a loser. We talked about this when we talked two weeks, about, two weeks ago about going to court. There's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. There are only limited resources in this world, and we're all fighting for them. And you're either going to win or lose. And you know, on top of that, God's general grace, that is the grace that he dispenses upon people, just generally, I'm not talking about special grace for salvation, but just general grace to provide the needs of life. You know, God favors certain people over other people. That's the way some people look at it. Today, Jesus says, no, 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 no to all of those things. Jesus says, God loves whom? Every person created on this planet. And he commands us He doesn't just encourage us. He commands us. He doesn't just suggest. He commands us to do what? To do two things in this passage. Actually, three things. The most obvious is to do what? To love our neighbor and who else? Our enemy. And to do what else? 
to pray for them. And then he says at the very end, and to be merciful to them. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he says in Matthew. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be what? Children, sons, daughters of your father who is in heaven. For you see, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For you see, if you love you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do the very same thing? Therefore, and he gives this last command, you are to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. This parallels the passage which Natalie read earlier from Luke's gospel. You know, the context is, of course, this is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. And he has talked through the Beatitudes and salt and light. And then he's gone through the six examples. This is the sixth example of how to fulfill righteousness, how to live out the law as God intends it to be lived out so that we are truly righteous people, that we can become perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And this last example of loving your neighbor and pray, uh, loving your enemy and praying for them is simply an extension of the first one that he brought up. And that is, do not murder. Loving your enemy is about as opposite of murder as you can get. And it summarizes everything that he's talked about in those six what scholars call an antitheses, those six examples. Those six examples that uh, deal with difficult relationships. The previous examples, I'm going to kind of give a hyperbolic description. I'm going to give an overstatement for each one of them. But those that we have offended, well, that's what he said, you know, when you know that you've offended somebody, go and be reconciled. But your adversaries who are taking you to court, the faithless spouse that commits adultery, difficult relationships, difficult partners that lead you to divorce, Smooth-talking hucksters who mislead and deceive people. Overbearing, privileged people that think that they can assert their personal rights over everyone else. Bothersome panhandlers who are always begging for money. You see, those are difficult relationships that he's talked about. And he comes then to summarize it. In Luke's passage, um, which Natalie read, it, it's a little different. It, it expands on this text, and it gives some solutions to everyday life. Um, it talks about turning the other cheek, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about giving to those who ask. It talks about not being judgmental, sort of out of a different order than the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to reread that passage, but I do want to note some differences. The pivotal verse in Luke's passage in this block of Scripture is not found until later in Matthew. And I think you probably heard it. The golden rule is right in the middle of this portion. And he gives very practical advice on daily transactions. But the most obvious and striking dif difference is this. At the end, Jesus says in Matthew, be what? Look at it. Be what? Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In Luke's passage, if you remember how it ended, if not, you can look at, uh, look at Luke 6. It ends this way, be merciful like your Father in heaven is merciful. And there's a very important correlation there. 
You see, the old standard, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Well, is that biblical? Of course it's biblical. Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor that that's okay, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For you see, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord of your neighbor and I'm I'm your Lord as well. So that old standard is scriptural. That's clearly not just something that they've heard, they've read, and it's part of the law. What about hate your enemies? Is that scriptural? You've heard it said, hate your enemies. It's logical, isn't it? According to human thinking. After all, the word ekthron means hated one. And one that hates, one that is odious, one that is hostile. So it is very normal and logical according to human logic to hate the person who hates you. To hate the person that's hostile against you. To hate the person that is out for you. It's very logical, but it's not biblical. The Bible never says, hate your enemies at all. There were members of Qumran community that took this, to, took the uh, uh, love your neighbor to heart to the point that they believe the opposite than hate your enemy. And there were other Jews like that that believed that every Gentile was to be what? Hated like an enemy. But Jesus says no. Some Old Testament texts talk about enemies of Israel. There's no question. And God commanded them to go and to fight against their enemies. But folks, by the time Jesus comes along, these are artifacts of ancient history. I mean, where are the Ammonites? Where are the Moabites? Where are the Amalekites? So you can't justify it based on those texts. Others, other texts suggest that we should hate people who are God's enemies. So David exclaims in Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And I think it's right for David to defend God's honor. But Jesus comes along in the new covenant and the Sermon on the Mount, and he then changes their perspective. He says you need to have a different attitude about enemies and even those people that you think are enemies of God. For you see, they're not the real enemy. The evil one is the enemy. We need to free them from captivity by the the real enemy. We should do everything possible that we can when we see a person that we think is an enemy of God, not to hate them, but to do what? To win them to become a friend of God. You know, there is a passage in Scripture that's rather problematic that came out of Jesus' own mouth. He talked about hating, and I know you're probably thinking about it. Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But we know what he's doing there. He is using a hyperbole. He is using an overstatement. What he is really saying is this. Your love for me should be so passionate and so intense and so steadfast. Your love for me should be so powerful that your love for your family would seem to be hate. He's using a comparison here. He's not really saying hate your parents and your, and your family. You know, in, in Jesus' day, hostility filled the landscape. There were the Jews who were Aramaic-speaking Jews that didn't get along with the Greeks, the Diaspora Jews. 
There were Herodians that were the followers of Roman policy and loved Herod, and they really didn't get along with the Zealots. The Zealots had the Sicarii, who were assassins that would go after the Roman officials. In the religious realm, there were the Pharisees against the Sadducees, and they, they sat in the Sanhedrin together. There were the Essenes and the Samaritans. All of these groups had animosity against the other. There was Jew versus Samaritan. There was Judean versus the country bumpkin Galileans. There was Jew versus Gentile. But Jesus says, love your enemies. You see, the Old Testament actually encouraged this, and Jesus is fulfilling that law. Exodus 23 says this. If you meet your enemies ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall release it back to him. Don't hate your enemy. If your enemy is hungry, in, in Proverbs it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And then you know it's quoted later. In scripture, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And heaping coals on the burning head was not a punishment, that was a gift. Other ancient traditions also said to love your enemies. The Babylonian councils of wisdom, there was pragmatic advice for avoiding entangling lawsuits. Sounds sort of like what Jesus is saying about don't go to court. <laughs> Do not return evil to the man who disputes with you. Requite with kindness your evildoer. Smile on your adversary. And then your ill-wisher will also nurture you. In Egypt, Amenemopetet, in his instructions to restore evildoers, said, So steer that we may be able to bring the wicked man across. Fill his belly with bread of thine, so that he may be sated and not be ashamed. And there are similar statements in Greek philosophy about the cynics who actually love their enemies. Cicero or Cicero, whatever your Latin is, had a utilitarian view about this. If rulers are going to gain power, and if they're going to keep power, the most suitable means to win and maintain power is love. The most suitable, unsuitable is fear. For fear is a terrible guardian for lasting certainty, but upon love one can firmly rely even forever. So you see, these ideas were current in pagan philosophy as well. What's the Christian perspective? And why does Jesus say this? Well, there's a theological basis for it. Literally theological, because theological theology is the study of whom? God, God himself. You see, God is fair. God is fair to all. He's merciful to everyone, and he wants everyone to have an equal chance. The psalmist says in Psalm 145, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies over all his works. Why is this? Because God is, John tells us, what? God is love. He loves all persons. Why does he love all persons? I don't want you to take this wrong way, but because he can't help it. Oh, God can help anything. But you know what I'm saying? It is who he is. He loves everyone. According to God's general grace in this passage, he supplies everyone's daily needs, the sunshine and the rain without discrimination. And even according to God's special grace, that is, His grace for salvation, not everyone will be saved, but God wishes that every person, he, Paul tells Timothy, 
He wishes that everyone would be saved. So theologically, the basis for this is God is love and, and he loves everyone. It builds on two previous passages about how we should be God's children in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, the seventh Beatitude, Matthew 5, 9, it said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that don't hate their enemy. Blessed are the peacemakers that love their enemy. Blessed are the peacemakers that, that bind people together in peace. And then if you are a peacemaker, then you will be then called what? Sons of God. Children of God. You see, this is the father motif. If we're going to be light of the world, light and salt, which comes next, he says that you are to do what? You are to be the light of the world, and there's a purpose behind this. People look at you, and they see your good deeds, and they will glorify you. Is that what it says? No. They see your good deeds, and they will glorify whom? Your father. You see, you're children of the Almighty God, and they will glorify your father. So it has to do with the fatherhood of God. He loves everyone, and he has created everyone. It's about the family of God. God is our father, and he created me. He created you. He created us as his children in his image. And as his children, we should want what the Father wants. The thing is, he created every other human being on the face of this planet in his image. And they are his children too, in a general way. They're part of his family. They're alienated from God. They're outside the family circle now. And he wants the children that are inside the family circle to do everything that we can. Anything that is legitimately possible according to Scripture. To do what? To restore them to the family circle. And we do this by not hating them, but by loving them to reunite his family. You see, Jesus' approach was radical. He had a radical message. The, the views that I expressed about pagans, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and all of that, you see, they were talking about people within their own society that had become enemies, but they did not say that about people outside their society. What Jesus is saying here, he puts no boundaries on his love. It's not just for the Jews that are fighting against each other. It's not just for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's even for, ooh, the Gentiles. Those that are outsiders, you see. This is radical. It's more radical than the third commandment. What's the third commandment? The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second is likened to that, and that is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And what is the third? What is the next great commandment? I command you, he says in John, love one another this is more radical than the third great commandment, you see, and it precedes that third great commandment. He used it to brand his believers. He said, by this they will know that you are my disciples. But he goes beyond that in this passage. It's radical. Not only love one another, but love your what? Your enemy. You see, this is God's perfect love. It's the Father's love to love all persons. And then there is a radical demonstration of that love. For God so loved the people in America. Yeah, he did. He does. And God so loves the people in Russia and in Vietnam and China and Cuba and Brazil and Germany. Well, we don't have time to do them all. But the point is this. For God so loved the whole world. That he did what? He didn't just send him. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's that radical. And the son of God, Jesus, who is the son of God, became the son of man. And he, too, loves every person, regardless of who they are. And when he died on that cross, he died for whom? 
He died once for all. Once for all people, once for all sin, once for all time to redeem them. Romans 5 says, when they were what? When we were still enemies. See, see, Jesus lived out what he said. He loved his enemies. You see, there's a transforming power of love. It's counterintuitive for us to think that we should love our enemies. It's, it, it's counterintuitive. It goes against our logic to say, I should love those that hate me and that I really don't like. Is it possible to love somebody that you don't like? That's what he's saying here. You see, what happens, the transforming power of love is when we make a conscious effort to love somebody else, God begins to change our attitudes in our heart. Selfless love is compelling. Selfless love is the kind of love that changes our own heart. And it not only changes our own heart, but people see it and they might, they might just possibly do what? Love us back. This kind of love is also disarming. The disarming power of love. Jesus demonstrated this to the ultimate degree. Follow me here. What are our greatest enemies in this life? Sin and what? Its consequence. Death. Sin and death. And the spiritual powers, the rulers and the, the authorities then that you promote them. Okay? We got that in our mind. Those are the greatest enemies. Jesus put them to death. Jesus disarmed sin and death. Jesus disarmed the powers and the principalities behind spiritual death. Jesus disarmed them by doing what? By demonstrating his love on the cross. Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians starting in November as our Bible study on Sunday evening. I encourage you to come. And in the second chapter, he says this. It describes this. It says, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, our enemy, and he has taken it out of the way. He has nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and the authorities behind this, you see, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. You see, he put the enemies to death by doing what? Loving so much that he died. Now let me deal with the second command and then close. Pray for those who persecute you. This goes back to the beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus warned the twelve, you're going to go out there and they're going to persecute you. Paul said the very same thing, and he knew it because he suffered a lot of persecution. And to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to be godly in Christ will be persecuted. Here, Jesus tells us how to deal with that kind of opposition and persecution. Not just love your enemies. There's a logic behind this. There's a logic behind praying for persecutors. You see, there's the transformative power of prayer. You know, it's hard to love those who persecute you, isn't it? People are persecuting you. How do you feel? You feel hatred. It's hard to love those who persecute you, but it is harder to hate those for whom we pray. It's easy to love those that persecute you, but it's hard to to hate those for whom you pray. When we begin to pray for our enemies, what begins to happen? God changes our heart. I said that, you know, when we love our enemy, they might love us back, but that's not guaranteed. <laughs> Often it didn't happen to the martyrs, it didn't happen. There's also the fact that prayer is a powerful spiritual weapon. 
You see, the most effective weapon that we can employ against the enemy is love, and the most powerful form of love is what? Praying for them. And when we deploy prayer for those that we don't like but we love, they begin to witness it as we pray for them. And there's a supernatural power of prayer then. They might not respond to our love by loving us back. But we need to remember what Jesus said standing by the fig tree. When you ask, praying, believing that it is, all, that it is yours, it will be given to you. He commands us to pray for our enemies. The idea is that he can and he will do a transforming act in the heart of the other person. And when we pray for our enemies, we're talking to the Father. And isn't it the Father's will that they would then be brought into his family? Isn't it the Father's will that they would not be his enemy? Isn't it the Father's will that they would not be our enemy? Yes, there is one thing that we can be guaranteed of, and that is this. If we pray to the Father for our enemy, if there is anyone that can transform their heart supernaturally, it is God. And that's what we're doing. We're not just praying, oh, Lord, let them like me. We're praying for what? Lord, save them. Transform their hearts. You see, the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish what? Much. And so supernaturally, it's not just that we love, but the power of prayer, the season of prayer that we're having. As we pray for the harvest, there are people out there that are not open to the gospel. They're hostile to the gospel. They can never be saved. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. We begin to pray for them now. Even if, they, even if we don't like them, even if they seem to be our enemies, and then what God begins to do is to work a transforming act in their heart and opens their mind and their soul to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, there were demonstrations of this in Scripture. Jesus did it. On the cross, he said what? Father, the enemies that were putting him down. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Was there another person that did this? In the New Testament. Stephen, as he was dying, he fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. I believe that almost certainly that the church took that to heart. And I think, even though the scripture doesn't say this, I think that they're praying for their enemies. They're praying for their enemies. They're praying for their persecutors in Acts. And guess what? The greatest persecutor of all, Paul, no, Saul, on the road to Damascus, supernaturally God did what? He changed him. Now, why do you think that happened? Well, I know it was because it was God's plan. I know in eternity God knew that Saul, the rabbi, was going to be walking on the road to Damascus and he was going to be transformed. But I also believe that there were Christians that were praying for Paul. And God answered their prayer. Now, don't cite a text in Scripture that substantiates that. That's what I think. I think they took this message to heart. Now let's take a look at the very last thing. What's the importance of the last verse? Matthew says this, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, what he's been talking about is, if you want to be perfect, and he's given six examples of perfect righteousness, then these are the things that you do. And he summarizes it in this passage about loving your enemy and praying for them. And then he closes it in Matthew by saying, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We know what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean legalistically that we keep all of the rabbinic code. It doesn't mean that we keep all of the Ten Commandments perfectly, even though we strive to do so. We're all imperfect. We're all sinners. We have all fallen from grace. That's not what it means. 
What does it mean? How does one surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Matthew 5, 20. What summarizes the perfect fulfilling of the law? Go back through those again. Living with peace, in peace with those whom we have offended. Staying faithful in our relationships, not committing adultery. Honoring lifelong commitments, not going from divorce to divorce to divorce. Being straightforward and honest in our speaking and our dealings. Being moderate in our spirit and not overbearing. And being generous and loving and praying for our enemies. How do you wrap all of this together? Well, be perfect like your Father in heaven's perfect. There's where Luke comes to the rescue. What does it mean to be perfect? What does he say? How does it close? Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You see, what he does is he makes an equation here. To be perfect is to be perfectly merciful. God's perfect love is he loves everyone. And the fullest expression of righteousness is not the legalistic keeping of the law. It's not ticking off the do's and the don'ts, and I am so righteous and pure because I did right. The, most, the, the fullest expression of righteousness, the perfect expression of righteousness, is to love as the Father loves. To be merciful as the Father is merciful. To love everyone, even if we don't like them. Even if they're not just like us. Even if they've offended us or we've offended them. To show merciful love to everyone, just as our Father in heaven loves everyone. Because you know what? He created every one of them in the image of God. As we pray for the harvest, friends, and we're moving into that season after we have prayed for the harvesters, we need to be praying for those that the Lord wants to be redeemed and to come into his family. And you know what? Not all of them are going to look like us. Not all of them are going to be like us. And not all of them are going to like us. And we may not like all of them. Oh, come on, folks. Let's be honest about it. In today's politics, are there people in this church that disagree politically? Sure. Yeah. Are there people in this church of different socioeconomic stations in life? Sure. Are there people of different ethnicities? Sure. Backgrounds, nationalities. You know, you may not ride through the streets of Hanoi hanging on to the son of an NVA veteran. But we all encounter people that at some time or another may have been at enmity with our family or with us. Don't let the R word, racist, don't let any other label that they just throw out there in a shallow sort of way, allow us to la label people and to say, I not only don't like you, I don't love you, and you don't belong in the kingdom. We need to pray for everyone. And we need to pray that God will bring a great harvest and that our hearts will be open and that we will love them and that we will pray for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save each and every living soul that you have created, that you love everyone, that there's nothing special about me, there's nothing special about Gamble Street, there's nothing special about we people that call ourselves Christians except for this one very special thing. We are sinners whom you have redeemed through the blood of your son Jesus Christ. And because of your special grace, you have saved us. And you have called us then to proclaim a message of not only salvation, but of peace and love. 
Woe be unto us if we perpetuate the divisions in our denomination. Woe be unto us if we are bad witnesses because we fight one another. Lord, I pray that you will bring us together as Baptists, as Christians, and that we will pray for one another and that we will pray for harvesters for all of your churches, for all of your bodies of Christ across this nation, and that we will be about the business that you have called us to, and that is to pray for others and to love them into the kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.